0: It is good to be in the house of God and to be able to come today and to worship him. And I will also say, as uh, Brother Nathan did, I I thought all night and as I was studying for this morning, it's hard to get the message that I heard yesterday off of my mind and and was really blessed by that. And so I know um, that as we approach the word of God today... Sorry, and I'm going to go ahead and tell you all this is a new territory for me I'm trying something new and it's going to be very different But um, for me going all electronic for the first time ever I've never trusted it before I always print out my sermons and all that and my Aunt Linda purchased me a tablet And so I'm I'm trying things new and so it's talking to me while I'm uh, trying to get it pulled up here But maybe we'll uh, be good as we go forward So if you have your Bibles turn to Titus chapter 1 Verses 10 through 16. Titus chapter 1, verses 10 through 16. And as you're turning there, we're going to look at this passage and, and not really dive in and, and really try to unpack everything that's here, but kind of look at the big picture of what uh, we have here in this letter to Titus uh, in this uh, this portion of it in verses 10 through 16 and the title of the message is truth error and sanctification truth error and sanctification so as we begin reading there in verse 10 of titus chapter 1 says for there are many unruly and vain talkers and deceivers especially they of the circumcision Whose mouths must be stopped, who subvert whole houses, teaching things which they ought not, for filthy lucre's sake. One of themselves, even a prophet of their own, said, The Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, slow bellies. This witness is true, wherefore rebuke them sharply, that they may be sound in the faith, not giving heed to Jewish fables and commandments of men that turn from the truth. Unto the pure all things are pure, but unto them which are defiled and unbelieving is nothing pure, but even their mind and conscience is defiled. They profess that they know God, but in works they deny him, being abominable and disobedient and unto every good work reprobate. So as we uh, look at this passage of scripture and you read that just at face value and, and, uh sounds harsh, doesn't it? It just sounds like a, a rough text. There's a, a lot of tough language here, and you think, oh, man, we're, this is going to be tough today. Um, there's, there's actually a really beautiful message here when you unpack the whole thing about the, uh, the difference in truth and error and how that impacts us as Christians and how we actually live our lives. Did you know that um, what you hear out of the Word of God is not just so that you know truth or error? that when we know truth or error that should affect then how we carry that out in our life and how we live and so that's the the gist of the title is that because there's truth and error and we address those things uh, in the way that we preach and the way we handle the word of God then that should have an impact on our sanctification and our sanctification is how we are living out our faith in our life and how we're being conformed to the image of Christ so if you go back to the first part of the chapter I'm not going to read uh, the whole first part of the chapter. But if you go back to the beginning of this chapter and the beginning of this letter, one of the things that he does right away is in verse 5 he says, for, for this cause I left thee in Crete, that thou shouldest set in order things that are wanting, ordain elders in every city as I have appointed thee. And then he goes through the qualifications. And I will tell you something, if you read these qualifications and you go over to Timothy and you read the qualifications it almost makes it to where no one would ever preach. <laughs> you know, we, no one feels qualified. Um, you know, when we read things like blameless, the husband of one life, having faithful children, not accused of right or unruly, uh, bishop must be blameless as the steward of God, not self-willed, not soon angry, not given to wine, no striker. Um, all of these things, a lover of hospitality, a lover of good men, sober, just, holy, temperate. And so I need to just go sit down. I mean, really, honestly, that is the truth, and, and I know especially a lot of uh, young men who are feeling the call to ministry, and, and you read those things, you say, there's, there's no way, but uh, the good news is God qualifies who he calls, and uh, these, these are here for a reason, and, and it's not that we ignore them or anything, but we also know that the men that stand before us are sinners, and Paul knew that as well. Uh, but there are qualifications, and that's going to be important, too, because one of the things he's going to say here is that, Titus, you need to set these things in order, you need, but you have to be an example in that as well. You can't be trying to set these things in order and your life be completely opposite to that of what you are trying to preach. So what I wanted to point out from that, that section, though, is remember back in verse 5, the first one I read from this first section, he said, set in order the things that are wanting. Ordain elders in every city as I had appointed thee. So isn't it interesting that Paul's concerned about the discipleship in these local congregations. He's concerned about this congregation standing out, being distinctive, being a unique witness to Christ in its living and its believing uh, the gospel that had been preached uh, in this area. So he says ordain elders. That's the first thing that he says. He says you need to ordain elders. You need to find men who meet these spiritual qualifications and cause them uh and and help teach them and and that they would be used for teaching and discipleship in the congregation for combating false teaching in the congregation and and paul knew that the men who bore these distinctive qualities that are described here in verses five through nine would be the kind of example to these christian christians of how they ought to live in the midst of an immoral culture and we're going to find that out in our text um uh, you know there's really nothing new under the sun we we feel like we 're living in one of the most immoral ages that there's ever been and and I, you know there's really nothing new under the sun Paul's writing to Titus and Titus is living in a place, and we'll get to his description in a minute, but it 's not very kind of of this culture that the the Cretans were living in so so really uh, that's kind of the the text the the pretext before we get to verse 10. And so there's four things then that we're going to try to see from this passage today. In verses 10 and 11, Titus is going to say he wants to silence false teachers. Then in verses 12 through 14, he's going to encourage sound doctrine that leads to godliness. And then in verses 15 and 16, there's really two things that go hand in hand, but we're going to kind of separate them out just a little bit. Uh, One is to understand the process of sanctification, and the other is that faith without works is dead. So, faith without works is dead. So, those are the four kind of big topics that we want to see from this passage this morning. And we're going to start with our first point uh, from verses 10 and 11 is that the church must never tolerate false doctrine. The church must never tolerate false doctrine. So, he says, For there are many unruly and vain talkers and deceivers especially they of the circumcision, whose mouths must be stopped, who subvert whole houses, teaching things they, which they ought not for filthy lucre's sake. Now, and, and this first reason we see right here in verses 10 and 11, that the church must never tolerate false doctrine. In other words, we must silence false teachers. That should not be allowed in the house of God. The elders there are to make sure that the teaching that goes on in those local congregations is sound and that it's according to God's word, that it's in accordance with the preaching of Paul and the other apostles, Uh, in this letter is is how he would have worded it. Paul has a zero-tolerance policy regarding teaching that deviates from Scripture, and the church ought to have that as well. Now, I'm going to go ahead and say this right away. The way I worded that was that that's the elder's responsibility, and it is. But did you know that there's more responsibility than just for the elders? Did you know that every member of this church is responsible for the teaching that comes from this, this pulpit? We're all, when we hear that, we're all to be um, making sure that all the things that are taught from this pulpit are thus saith the word of God. That's everybody in here's responsibility. I think there is a particular responsibility, though, on elders in the church. I also personally feel like that that's why it's important to have a plurality of elders in the church. There's safety in that. So that, as we 're all hearing each other preach we 're all in agreement on those things there's a lot of safety in that i I feel good that when I get up and preach, if I were to say something that 's wrong, I know one of these men's going to say hey let's go let's talk about that for a minute let's let's and that's there's nothing wrong with it that 's a good thing, and that's really what paul 's saying here is you, you you cannot allow those things you know have you ever had to uh, go to somebody and and kind of you know talk to them and say hey, uh, you know, there's something going on that's, that's not right, or you've had to pull your friend aside and tell him, hey, I don't think this is right. Is that, are those easy conversations? Are those the conversations we like to have? You know, for me this summer it was, or back in the spring, um, there were two men at my school and one of them that I was actually really close to that I had to call in and say, hey, we've got to part ways. That's not an easy conversation. But we have to be men and, and we have to be uh, good citizens of our church and good citizens of the kingdom of God. And if there's things that are wrong, we have to have the will and the strength and the obedience to say, hey, this is wrong. And we've got to speak up and have that zero tolerance policy on false doctrine. So that's really what Paul says here. He even um, gives like some details about it and he gives the qualities of these false teachers in verse 10 And there's a couple of qualities there that you can recognize. It's a little bit easier to understand in the ESV. In the the ESV version, it uses the word insubordinate. So where it says there are many unruly and vain talkers and deceivers, that word unruly can be interpreted as insubordinate or rebellious. So it's a rebellion. It's a rebellion against the truth of the word of God. So he says, that there is a certain rebellion that is part of this, this rebellious men that are doing this false teaching. Um, Christians uh, should be aware that we should be filtering everything that we hear through the word of God. And, you know, I'm not just talking about preaching. I'm talking about everything on your social media feed, articles that you read. I think it's very good for you, especially young people. You need to get in the habit of reading good books. Uh, that's a really good thing. But be careful and filter all of those things through the Word of God. So, you know, you read a book and it tells you to do all of these things. Make sure that you're being very careful to understand that that has to agree with the Word of God. The Word of God is our only rule of faith and practice, it is the only thing that we can count on 100%. So, I mean, you get a new book and it's a book written by, I'll just pick somebody, John MacArthur, and, and you read the book. There's nothing wrong with that at all. That's great. But make sure that you are also, as you're doing that, you're paying attention to make sure that those things, especially those things that you're going to apply in your life, are uh, thus saith the word of God. And, And that's what he's really talking about here. He says there's many unruly, there's these rebellious and vain talkers and deceivers, especially they of the circumcision, so these Judaizers. And he says this has got to stop because they're teaching things that are not according to the word of God. They're not obeying Uh, the Word of God and what they're teaching, and it's not according to the apostles' doctrine. And so he identifies them in one way as rebellious, and then he uses this term vain talkers and deceivers. Vain talkers and deceivers. Now, vain talkers its just one word in the Greek. We have to split it up into two words in the English. But it really means um, those who peddle with big language and and very... um, eloquent language they're able to have you ever watched Joel Osteen preach I mean the guy he can make it sound so appealing and eloquent and and it makes you feel good because what he's saying is very positive and it has a good ring to it and it all kind of fits together and and it's not that all of those things are necessarily wrong. It's okay to be eloquent. It's okay to, to have a, uh, a good presentation. I think those things are actually positive. But what he's really talking about here are those who that's really all they got. There's no truth behind what they're saying. And if that's the case, we've got to be really careful with that. So they peddle with big words and, and big talk but very little substance. Um my mind immediately went to when I was studying that out to see what that meant my mind immediately went to when Beck and I first moved to Alaska we were looking for a church and couldn't find one and we went to the the Presbyterian Church that was kind of tied to the college and went in they had some singing and some different things and then the preacher got up and it was all about world hunger all about world hunger and we need to help feed the children in Africa and and we need to do this and that. And I, I just—I mean, not, is there anything wrong with feeding children in Africa? Absolutely not. Is there—is world hunger a problem? Yes. Is that one I wanted to hear from the pulpit on Sunday morning? No, I needed the Word of God, and it was—it was absent. So it's—it's it's a lot of talking with very little substance. And so they are deceivers. There, and and it can be worse than that. It can also be that they're peddling false doctrine. So they are saying things that are not just. Um, lacking substance. It's that it has substance that is wrong. They reject the authority of the Word of God, and they peddle their own ideas in the place of the Word of God. So as we learned at the end of 2 Timothy there, you remember in chapter 4 we talked about what is it that we're supposed to preach? He said, preach the Word of God. Uh, so our job when we come up into this stand is to take the word of God and explain it to you. It's not to bring our own ideas, our own thoughts, what, how we think you should um, live your life or anything. It's to take the word of God and expound it to the people of God. And so Paul is concerned here because he believes that these vain talkers and deceivers are not doing that. So Paul, believe it or not, does not believe in freedom of speech in the church. Did you know that? that man, that just hurts an American's heart, doesn't it? Um you can't just say anything in the church and it be okay. It must be thus saith the word of God. And we're responsible for that as an assembly. So Paul is concerned that the Christians in these congregations need to be living counterculturally. They don't need to be giving in to the culture around them. And we're going to find out about that culture in a minute on, on how bad it is in this, in this particular place. But Titus, he says, Titus, you and the elders here need to silence False teachers. You need to fight false teaching. So let's go to Romans 16. Romans 16, verses 17 and 18. So at the very end of the book of Romans. Now I beseech you, brethren, mark them which cause divisions and offenses contrary to the doctrine which ye have learned, and avoid them. For they that are such serve not our Lord Jesus Christ but their own belly, and by good words and fair speeches deceive the hearts of the simple. So this is exactly right in line with what we're hearing over here in Titus about these uh, vain talkers and deceivers, same, same topic, and he says you need to make sure that you pay attention to who those people are, and you don't need to listen to them. They, their mouths need to be stopped. Uh, we can't allow things that are contrary to the doctrine, the way it's worded in Romans, contrary to the doctrine which ye have learned, and you need to avoid them. So uh, it's not okay to placate or to pacify false teaching. It's not okay. And and here's the difficulty in that, and, and we're going to move on real soon to our second point. But this is the difficulty in that. So is unity a good thing in the church? Absolutely. Is unity a good thing in the greater church? Um, in in unity between churches is that a good thing absolutely those things are good is it good to have unity at the at the expense of false doctrine no it is not and Paul says you need to avoid that you need to mark it you need to stay away from it you don't need to placate it you don't need to say well you know it's okay I, I know they're basically preaching a false gospel but you know they got the right name on the sign or, you know, their grandparents went to the right church or, or whatever it might be. And, and so we're just going to all pretend like things are okay. That is dangerous. And what will happen there is it will begin to dilute truth over generations. And that's a very dangerous thing. So Paul, Paul's concern is, is that we not placate it, but we call it out. He says, you must deal with false teaching in the church. It's not something that you can just play around with. So the church must never tolerate false doctrine and false teachers, but we must call those things out, call them for what they are, and then stay away from those who are not teaching the truth, as thus saith the Word of God. Now, secondly, in the next couple of verses, um, he's going to shift gears a little bit, basically the same topic, but the other side of that same, same topic. In verses 12, uh, 12 and 13, Paul wants the congregations in Crete to be strongly exhorted to countercultural living and to be biblical in their thinking. And he's telling Titus and the eldership there, all the elders that are in this place, that they must rebuke these Christians under cultural assault with sound teaching in the church. So he goes on, he says you've got to rebuke this false doctrine being taught, but at the same time you need to replace that with doctrine that is unto godliness. Encourage sound doctrine that leads to godly living in verses 12 through 14. So verses 12 through 14, it says, One of themselves, even a prophet of their own, said, The Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, slow bellies. This witness is true. Wherefore, rebuke them sharply that they may be sound in the faith, not giving heed to Jewish fables and commandments of men that turn from the truth. So now if you're looking at verses 12 through 14, this is the part of the text that I told you earlier. I said, this is, this is pretty blunt, right? He's, he's basically saying, so, so let's kind of, you know, put it in our, our own terms. What if, you know, somebody had, the, there's this rumor out there, and it says, you know what, the people in Faulkner, or you can zoom it out a little bit, people in Mississippi, they're just lazy. <laughs> they don't work. They don't do anything right. They, they're, they're just, man, they're just bad people. Well, you would probably get a little bit offended, wouldn't you? You'd say, well, wait a minute now. (laughs) Hold on a second. Well, that's what he says. He says, look, here's here's what's being said about these people. And then he said, he kind of doubles down on it. He said, and guess what, Titus? It's true. It's the truth. This is not just some rumor or people that don't like the people there. The culture there really is this bad. This is the, the predominant way that people live in this area. He said, this is actually true. So these are kind of in-your-face kind of words, and, and I think Paul meant them to be. And he, that's what he's encouraging uh, Titus to here. He's saying you're going to have to address this head on. You're going to have to be honest. You're going to have to say the hard truth. And so you're going to have to uphold truth in a, in a culture and in an area where it's going to be hard to do, and it's going to probably be offensive to some. So Paul wants this congregation in Crete to be strongly exhorted to be countercultural in the way that they think and they live. He wants them to be biblical in their thinking and biblical in their living. And he's telling Titus that the, the elders there must be involved in confronting Christians who are under cultural assault, warning them against false teaching, but also replacing that with the truth and, and encouraging sound doctrine that leads uh, to godliness. So for He says, so you need to reprove them severely or sharply, it says in the KJV, that they may be sound in the faith. John 17, 17, sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. What does that word sanctify mean? It means to set apart. It means that you're to make sure that the people in the church are living in such a way that they stand out, that they're not going along with the culture that is clearly From what we just read, you can tell, not a good culture. It's not the way that you would want to live. That's not the reputation that you would want to have. So what are some of those things in our culture? What are some of the things that right now, if you're swimming with the current, that you would be agreeing to? Or what are some things in our culture that we should be standing up in this church and teaching the truth about? Well, how about let's start with this one. A man is a man, and a woman is a woman. Is that real popular today? I mean, how much simpler can you get than that? God created what? Male and female. He created, that's the way that He created it. He created men. He created women. Now, as ridiculous as it sounds for me to have to say that out of the pulpit, I'm telling you that according to the truth of the Word of God, that's how God created humankind. That there's men and that there's women. The murder of unborn. Is not a political issue. Did you know that? It's not a political issue. It's not something that we just, it's not just some cause for us to get behind. It's an issue of the word of God. Murder is wrong. God created life. And so we should be on the side of life. We believe that God created all humans in the image of God, every single one is created in the image of god that is according to the precepts and principles of the divinely inspired word of god that's not a political issue that's an issue of right and wrong according to god's word homosexuality is a sin and the bible calls it an abomination in the sight of god it goes against the order of god's creation that is truth that's not once again it's not a political issue and so our church this is what he's saying to titus titus First of all, stop the, stop the false teaching. Secondly, stand up for the truth. Preach those things which are true. Make sure that your congregation understands that they're going to be living differently and that they're going to have to confront these things in their culture. Now, those words are very confrontational. If you were to go out into you know, any city around here, Tupelo, Memphis, probably even Ripley at this point, and you just started saying those things that I just said, are you going to be a real popular person? Now, to be honest with you, we've had it really good here in Mississippi. We're probably, on average, 15, 20 years behind, right? Um, that's, that's pretty close to about the right years. Whatever's going on in the rest of the world, we're over here in our little bubble, and it doesn't affect us for about another 10 or 15 years. Well, this time it's happening faster. Um, I'll just tell you. It's, I'm amazed that I'm, I work at a Christian school, and these issues are very divisive, even among our people those who claim to be, we're not talking about a liberal over here who's an atheist and an unbeliever. We're talking about among the Christian community, even these things have become issues. Uh, just, I don't know how much you follow news and, and different things with other denominations, but the Southern Baptist Convention this year, unbelievable. Some of the things that were being talked about and discussed and brought up as issues, when really they're not issues. Things like female, females in the ministry, um, things about homosexuality, all of these, these tough issues. Well, it's okay to call them a tough issue, but really they're not. It's not a tough issue. I mean, the Bible's very clear on those things, and so we must stand on the truth. So you can kind of put this in, in our terms, and I kind of got sidetracked there, but you could say, okay, so these people in Mississippi, man, you know, this prophet of theirs, he said that, that all the people in Mississippi, they're liars, they're evil beasts, they're gluttons, they're and, and let me tell you, all of that stuff is true. That's kind of what... Titus is hearing from Paul. He says, I want you to know that those things are true. And you need to be the, the leader in your congregation in teaching that those things are wrong and that's not how a Christian lives. So you've got to teach the truth and and make sure that the, the right is held up. So it's not just that you push away the false, it's that you also uphold that which is true. You know, I, I mentioned that um, about how much I got out of that message yesterday that I heard and when I left that's one of the things I said I've you know going to a funeral and you know there's going to be a message and and that man exalted Christ that's that's what was so special about it was that he exalted Christ and and true doctrine and 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 we I left rejoicing about the resurrection and the power in the resurrection and Christ was exalted And so it's not just that we all the time preach against false things. We also exalt Christ and the truth. And so that's what he's really telling Titus here is don't get so focused on fighting. He, He told him point blank, go against that which is false. Silence the false teachers. That's a part of it. But on the other hand, also uphold that which is true and speak truth even when it's difficult to say. So gospel centeredness. Um, This is a a quote that I heard while I was at the T4G conference, and I can't remember who said it. I'd love to give them credit, but I can't remember which one of the speakers said it. But gospel-centeredness has filtered down to the pew to mean that we focus only on mercy and forgiveness and grace. This so-called gospel-centered preaching is allergic to biblical warnings and commands and exhortation to practical godliness and holy living. You see, Paul's concern about false teaching is not, only that, um, is not only just that it's false belief, but it's going to drive sin underground by not really dealing with it. So people feel like they're okay, and they're really they're being religious and, and, and following some rules, but really, when the, in the heart of the matter, we're not addressing the heart of the matter. So that's the second thing that Paul says to Titus, and it's so relevant to us today. You know, how many of us have been helped just on a small scale? We're talking about this in the church sense, but how many of us have been helped in a small sense by just an older brother in the church or a a good friend who's a good Christian um, mentor and and friend that has come alongside us and said, hey, I know, you know, you might be struggling with this. Here's what God's word said about it. How, How many times has that happened in your life? And what he's really talking about to Titus is to do that in the church sense, to do that on a grander scale. I was thinking about that because one of those men in my life, I had lunch with him yesterday and we have a, a very special relationship, but I'm going to tell you something about that man. His name's Mickey Bowden. I know him through school and everything. And, and Becca will tell you this is true. He will not hesitate to call me out when I need to be called out. He, it doesn't bother him at all. He'll say, now we've got to talk about something, and, and he'll say, uh, you know, I'll... Uh, he'll see me in, in a context and, and see me, you know, doing something, getting upset about something. Or, and he'll, he'll, he doesn't mind at all pulling me over and saying, now look, here's, here's a better way. Here's a better way. Here's what the word of God says. And, and, and he can do it in such a way that I can't get mad at him. You know, <laughs> there, there's a gift in that. And so at, in the church, we need to be able to do that as well. Speaking the truth in love, as it says in Ephesians 4.15. So Paul has said you need to address first. Uh, The false teaching. Secondly, uphold that which is true, speak the truth. Now, thirdly, we need to understand the process of sanctification. Understand the process of sanctification. So, in verses 15 and 16, this is what we have recorded for us. In verses 15 and 16, unto the pure, all things are pure, but unto them that are defiled and unbelieving is nothing pure. But even their mind and conscience is defiled. They profess that they know God, but in works they deny him, being abominable and disobedient and unto every good work reprobate. So we are going to take this section of two verses and and divide it. Our last point will be very short and very simple, though. So we're going to basically take verse 15 for point 3 about understanding the process of sanctification. So what Paul wants here, he wants Titus and the elders to reckon with the dynamics of the inward grace and how it is expressed in its outward expression so we must be aware that there is an outward expression of the inward work of the spirit of god in the life of a true believer okay that's the concept now that's a little complicated I'm going to repeat it we must be aware that there is an outward expression of the inward work of the spirit in the life of a true believer in every case, the Bible teaches that. In every case, there is an outward. Now, I didn't say how much of an outward expression. And I didn't say that, uh, there, that once you're born again and that inward work has happened, that you become perfect and everything that you do from that point forward is according to the Spirit of God. But there is an outward expression of the inward work of the Spirit in the life of a true believer. And so, what we're really talking about here is experiential sanctification, the continuing work of the Holy Spirit in the life of a child of God, conforming them to the image of Jesus Christ. So, we've talked about this so many times before, but when you're born again and converted, when you are regenerated and converted, so the Spirit has come in and given you spiritual life, and you've heard the message of the gospel. And believe because you have spiritual life, you're able then to have spiritual ability to believe and repent of your sins and follow Christ when that has happened, that begins a process in your life it doesn't end it it begins it, and that process is that we begin to be conformed more and more and more to the image of Jesus Christ. There is a process of sanctification it 's not a one time thing, and that's it now. Wouldn't that be wonderful if it was? If, you know, we believe and then poof, all sin is gone and we don't fight those things anymore and we're just immediately conformed to the image of Christ? Well, that's, that's not how it happens. We are conformed slowly to the image of Jesus Christ. It, that, that concept reminded me of, of some teaching I did about adoption. You know, in a natural adoption... Did you know a child will not begin, once you adopt a child, that child doesn't begin to become like your family? They will never, in a natural adoption, so if you're parents and you just adopt a child, it's not your child, but you adopt it from another family, in a natural sense, that child never becomes you. It doesn't take on your DNA. It never will have your traits that have been passed down through your family. That's the amazing thing about spiritual adoption. In the adoption into God's family, we, become, we begin to be more and more and more. We take on the family resemblance. We begin to look more and more like our older brother, Jesus Christ. We're being conformed to the image of our Redeemer. In Romans 8, 29, it says, For whom he did foreknow, he also did predestinate to be conformed to the image of his Son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. So we're being conformed to the image of of jesus christ so if we look at verses 15 and 16 the the first of the two messages that we find there is that he wants us to understand sanctification in this sense unto the pure all things are pure but unto them that are defiled and unbelieving is nothing pure so we're going to unpack that and kind of see what that means in just a second but this, this big concept of sanctification, I think it helps us to understand what that is before we really begin to unpack the text. So this is a quote that I did remember where I heard it. Um, John Piper said this at the same conference, between our conversion and our final glorification is this thing that we call the Christian life, and it's important. So we focus a lot on the gospel and on conversion, and, and rightfully so, And we focus a lot on the resurrection, and rightfully so, and what glorious truths those things are. Isn't it it wonderful that we have the gospel and that we believe in immediate regeneration? We believe that the Holy Spirit comes in, and we don't get to take any credit for that. Aren't those wonderful truths? And then we hear the gospel, and the gospel has the power to convert us to the truth, and that we then begin to live for God. And those those are all wonderful truths. And then uh, what was focused on yesterday so much about the resurrection and, and man, what hope and comfort there is in that, that when we part here in this life, it's not the end, that there's a resurrection. Because Christ died, uh, we had forgiveness of sins, but because he's risen, we have life, eternal life, and we will rise again. Those are all wonderful truths, but there's a lot of space in a lot of cases in between those two things, not in every case. But in a lot of cases there's a lot of space in between those two major things and that's what we call the Christian life and a Christian walk and it is very important. First Peter 2:24 says, "Who his own self bare our sins in his own body on the tree, that we being dead to sins should live unto righteousness by whose stripes ye were healed." So in one verse as we hear Peter talk about the imputation of our sin onto Christ. Christ bore our sins on the cross. As we hear about that, we must make the effective connection between canceled sin and power over sin in our life. Okay, so here's what we mean by that. Christ did pay for all of your sins. He he nailed those to the cross, and they are paid for. And yet in our life, he also conquered the power of sin in our life. So when we talk about canceled sin, that Christ bore our sins in his body on the tree, we also then begin to talk about that we should live unto righteousness. We should, we should uh, live our lives as though there is power over sin. We must make that effective connection between those two things. Jesus literally bore our sins, all of them. They were all imputed to him and were nailed to his cross. But in the accomplishment of our salvation, he also broke the power of sin over us. We are no longer slaves to sin. So the doctrine of atonement becomes a practical doctrine in the life of the believer. It's something that we live out every day. So when he tells us in this passage that to the pure all things are pure, you say, well, why would he say it that way? Well, the situation that he was dealing with specifically in this case was that there were these Judaizers and different people in these churches that were saying, well, if you really want to be a good Christian, You need to do this and this, and you need to check this box, and you got to have this ceremony, and you got to do all these things this way. And if you do those things, that's that's that you'll be a good Christian. Now, if they were saying that because they were getting those things from the Word of God, that would have been okay. The problem was they were adding to the Word of God all these different things that you had to check all these boxes and do. And then if you do all these things, you'll be a super Christian, you'll really be far along the road. Holiness, And those people who are not doing these things, they're just not quite on the level of these other Christians. That's really what was going on. And Paul says that's not how sanctification works. Sanctification never works or never is accomplished by ignoring the Bible. Sanctification doesn't work by adding to the Bible. Sanctification doesn't work by taking away from the Bible. And it definitely doesn't work by going along with popular myths that are in addition to the Word of God. He says these fables, as they're called in our text, that's not how the Holy Spirit works. The Holy Spirit works by taking the Word of God and applying it to your life, pure and simple. And so the principles and the precepts in the Word of God, then, are what we're responsible for to live. And, and all of these other things that are not according to the Word of God, uh, those are man-made additions. And he says you cannot get caught up in those things. It basically comes down to legalism. These were, they were trying to add things to uh, what the Word of God says. He says that's not how sanctification works. So trying to add rule-keeping and legalism to what the Bible actually says will not lead to a more holy life. Uh, Instead, we must follow what the Bible teaches and commit to living it every day. It's a statement that's not unlike the instruction in Romans 14. You don't have to turn there, but that whole chapter really. um, Go this afternoon and look at that in Romans 14 where he talks about how Christians are to consider things that are indifferent. That is, things that are not specifically forbidden or commanded in God's Word. How is a Christian supposed to deal with those things? Well, in Romans 14, I'll just give you an example. One of those things was this meat. Could we eat the, the meat that was being offered to pagan idols, or can we not eat it? Some Christians were eating it. Some were not. So it was basically this. Went to the market. There's this meat that you know comes from pagan idol worship and stuff. Well, we can't buy that. That's unholy. It's unclean. And some Christians were saying... It's cheap. It's available. I don't worship those pagan gods, and it's just meat, and I'm going to eat it. And Paul says, look, it's okay, but if it causes somebody to stumble, that's the only issue. Other than that, it's okay. So to the pure, all things are pure. Very same um, argument that is made here in our text, but just in in a slightly different context. So Paul says that to the pure, all things are pure. If you're following God's word, if you're under God's grace, and, and, and you're a believer, then, then to the pure, all things are pure. Now, what he does not mean by that is that you can pretty much go do whatever you want to do because to the pure, all things are pure. That's not the message at all, okay? So these are talking about indifferent things. If the Word of God says don't do it, then you can't do it. Now, that's just the way it works. Uh, if, if the Bible is indifferent on the matter, then he says to the pure, all things are pure. And we like to do that. We like to assume and make assumptions and add to and say things sometimes that the word... I'm not going to get into that this morning. I know um, that, uh, that that would probably be really entertaining. And, and, you know, there might be differences of opinion here on some of those things. But if the Bible is indifferent about a matter, then Paul says it shouldn't be something that causes division. To the pure, all things are pure. So once again, doesn't mean that what God has forbidden in his word are pure to those that are pure he's speaking of things which are are indifferent that this, the bible doesn't uh, command directly and so paul wants titus to make sure that the elders reckon with that reality that they um, see that in their congregations and that they're about that work of declaring the word of god so now you see the tie-in with our previous previous point how are you to know what the bible says well he said the elders would be doing two things right our first point and our second point number one Make sure that false teaching is dealt with so that people are not in in a false understanding of what the Word of God says. Secondly, make sure you're upholding the true Word of God. And then the reason we're doing those things is so that as we're trying to live this out through sanctification in our lives, we know those things that are actually thus saith the Word of God and those things that are not. Uh, It all ties together in that sense. Um, You know, the Bible says anything that is not of faith is what? Anything that is not of faith is sin. So There's a very high standard and a very high bar. And what we hear from the word of God here on Sunday mornings shouldn't just be for our knowledge or so that we can say that we understand the Bible better than other people or so that we can say our doctrine is more pure than your doctrine. All of those things should be so that we're being more conformed to the image of Christ in the way that we live our lives. And then lastly, he he ends with verse 16. They profess that they know God but in works they deny him being abominable and disobedient and to every good work reprobate. And so we said our fourth point is faith without works is dead. Faith without works is dead. So you have confront false teaching, uphold teaching that is good that leads to godliness, understanding the process of sanctification, and then now our fourth point faith without works is dead. So the fourth thing that that Paul is teaching us in this passage, so not only does he want them to silence false teachers, encourage encourage sound doctrine that that leads to the ends of godly living, understand the process of sanctification, he also wants them to know that our behaviors are an outward display of our inward desires. Our behaviors are an outward display of our inward desires. James, go to the book of James, chapter 2, And probably many people in here could quote a great portion of this passage. This is the faith without works is dead passage of scripture. In James chapter 2 verses 14 through 26, What doth it profit, my brethren, though a man say he hath faith and have not works? Can faith save him? If a brother or sister be naked and destitute of daily food, and one of you say unto them, Depart in peace... And be ye warmed and filled. Notwithstanding ye give them not those things which are needful to the body. What doth it profit? Even so faith, if it hath not works, is dead being alone. Yea, a man may say, thou hast faith and I have works. Show me thy faith without thy works and I will show thee my faith by my works. Thou believest that there is one God and thou doest well. The devils also believe and tremble. So, In this passage, I love the the example that's given here in in James. He says, okay, so here's, here's a practical example of how this works. He says, so there's this guy. You're driving down the highway, and you see these people over on the side of the road, and it's pouring down rain. It's 34 degrees outside, cold, pouring down rain. They don't have any rain gear. They don't have any food. They're hungry. They're destitute. They're on the side of the road. And you pull over, and you roll down your window and say, be warm and be dry and be full, and you drive away. That's literally what James said. Is that going to do them any good? No. You've got to actually provide them. You've got to do something. You've got to give them some, something to cover themselves. You've got to give them some food so that they can be full. You've got to actually do something, build them a fire so they'll be warm. You know, got, There's got to be action with what you're saying. And so he says, so it is with faith and works. If we say we have faith and there's no evidence... Then that is not a true faith. That's that's what he's really saying. Now that's that's difficult, folks. It's difficult for me. I don't know about you, but that's a that's a hard saying for me to hear, because I know my own life and I know my own struggle and my own uh, areas that I fall short in. But yet the truth that's that's what the Word of God says. So first of all, let's be clear about this from the beginning of this that. Paul nor I nor anybody that I know this that would preach in this church would ever teach a work salvation we don't believe in that so we're not saying that man if you don't do works you're not going to earn salvation that's not at all the message um, it, the, the the works that we do are an outward manifestation of the inward work of grace in our heart we don't we don't do good works or we don't, there's not evidence in our life that we earn favor with God or forgiveness of sin, but it is evidence that our profession of faith in Christ is true. I'll tell you what it is tied to is assurance. We've heard that very recently. That is a tied to, it's, it's 100% linked to our assurance. So if, if you have uh, a person who claims to have faith, but there's no works in their life, they're not going to have much assurance And the more works that you see, the more evidence of faith that you see lived out in their life, the more assurance that person is going to have. One of the beautiful statements that I think was made yesterday about uh, Brother Rich, there's no doubt. Isn't it great to be able to say that, that there's no doubt, that by the way that he lived his life, we can be confident that he's in heaven right now, that he is enjoying uh, being in the presence of God. So it is tied to assurance. But it's not that we earn salvation or anything like that. That's not, um, that's not how it goes at all. But what he's saying here, he's telling the elders in this church, and he's telling Titus, he's saying the outward manifestation of the inward work of grace in our hearts, uh, even though it doesn't earn us favor with God uh, or forgiveness of sins, it is evidence that those professions are real and true. So it's like when you go to the doctor's office and something's wrong, and, you know, usually those things are internal issues. So there's something going on, and the doctors, what will they do? Because you know this because you've had to pay the bills. They're going to start running all kind of tests, and they're going to need x-rays and MRIs so that Drew can have a job. You know, and they're, they're going to run all these tests, and they're going to try to figure out what's going on so that we can then know how to fix it. So what they're trying to do is find an outward manifestation of an inward problem. Right? That, that's really what they're doing. They're trying to find something that some data or some measurable test that is a symptom that will show them so they can diagnose a root problem or cause of your sickness. So, in other words, you may be sick at your stomach or something, but is that your real problem? No, there's something going on that's causing you to have that symptom. So, they're looking for this outward manifestation that they can then. Test and and look for data that then they can diagnose the root problem. Was well, kind of the reverse of that, is what he's saying here. You know, those outward manifestations of our faith in our life are then evidence. Then that there is a work of grace that's happened in our life. That's it's kind of the opposite of that. So Paul's saying to the elders, let me give you a diagnostic test. If you want to see what's going on in the heart of a Christian, look at their life, look at their actions, look at their priorities, look at what it is that they care about the most, look at their how they love their neighbors. Look at how they treat others. Look at how they treat those who are less fortunate than them. Uh, What do they believe about the scripture? Are they willing to be taught? Are they willing to listen to sound doctrine? All of those things uh, become then evidence of the heart issue on the inside. So, you know, people say we can't judge. What did Jesus say about that? He said, how how are you going to know them? Are you going to know them because you have e-goggles and you can see who's elect and who's not? No, you're going to know them by their fruits. You're going to be able to see the fruit in their life of whether or not uh, they are truly a child of God or not. Now, Paul's words here then, I think you can see, this is not a, a doctrinal message about truth and error. It's really a practical message about truth and error. Paul's words here are infinitely practical to these Christian Christians, and they can be also that practical for us as well. They were living in an immoral culture. They were living in a culture that had great temptations. Well, are we in any different position today? We're living in a culture that is really going off the rails in a a crazy way. And so we need to uphold truth, address error, and and try to understand the process of sanctification in our own lives and in the lives of our church and make sure that we're upholding those things. And finally that we understand that faith without works is dead, that that our witness matters, and that what we do between the time that we're um, converted and and born again and converted to the time that we leave this earth is important, and it speaks about what it is that we believe. It speaks to the truth that we claim to believe. So I hope the Lord will bless those things to your heart and mind this week as you meditate on those things and, and think, like I said, that was a That was kind of like a rock skipping the surface of a lake. We didn't dive into that real deeply, but I hope those things will be a blessing to you as you study the word this week.